Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, September 3rd, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Welcome back. Uh, We are staring down the barrel of a terrible jobs report this morning. Um, Job numbers coming in two-thirds lower than expected. We expected 750,000 new jobs. We got about 250 or 225,000, something like that. It's um, uh, shocking and uh, and uh, debilitating news and I think uh, represents more of this dark night of the soul that the Joe Biden and the Biden administration are going through. You take this you take the bungled uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan and uh, all of the ancillary matters relating to it, which we'll go into a little later, and you take uh, the Delta variant uh, and its uh, continued um, the anxiety that it is uh, that it is creating, uh, and an op-ed this morning by Joe Manchin in the Wall Street Journal that effectively puts the final dagger in the hopes of the American liberal left for a three and a half trillion dollar wish list of spending uh, in a reconciliation bill. Manchin saying he will not vote for it, uh, meaning there there have to be every Democrat has to vote for it. And then Kamala Harris has to break the tie in the Senate for it to pass as a 51 vote reconciliation budget matter. And all Manchin had to do was say no, or 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 Kirsten Cinema from Arizona say no, and Manchin has now said no. Uh, mo- most telling then, and this happens of course before the Manchin news and before the jobs number, uh, is an NBC News poll out this morning uh, that has Biden's approval. Excuse me, ABC, ABC News, and Washington Post poll. Down to 44% with 51% disapproval. Approval rating down 9 points among independents, 10 points among men overall. And here's the important point about this. As we keep saying, Republicans are increasingly not responding to polls. So if polls look bad for Democrats, they're especially bad for Democrats because what you're seeing is reflected among people who are not his worst supporters. When polls go bad for Democrats... It means you got to take them seriously, much more seriously than when polls go bad for Republicans, because you can always look at that and say, well, Republicans aren't responding to poll questions the way that the way that other people are. Uh, Abe, you um, you have a you have a theory about what's going on here. Yeah. Regarding uh, Biden's uh, popularity and, and the trouble he's facing, um, I think his biggest problem right now is not that um, Americans disapprove of uh, the Afghan withdrawal. In fact, most apparently still approve of of our having withdrawn, not that they disapprove of the way uh, that the withdrawal was conducted, although they they do disapprove of that. What's happened in the past two weeks, three weeks, is that Biden has made himself extremely unlikable. And this was uh, his like, and his likability was a tremendous asset for him, especially in light of the uh, of, of Donald Trump and the way the country felt about him. But since then, he has come out, he has seemed angry, strange, dismissive, um, untruthful over and over again. And 
this is a very personal effect of what has gone on for the past few weeks. It is it is the least important effect in terms of how we conducted our Afghan withdrawal. Uh, things such as uh, national security, the rise in terrorism, America's standing in the world, the fate of, of Afghans, those are all more important in terms of real-world consequences. But for Joe Biden, this small detail is actually a very large detail. He has made himself unlikable, and that is a very hard one for people to overcome. You can always get on board uh, with a policy retrospectively. You can forget that you hated a policy. Um, when do you when do you take a, a disliking uh, to someone, that is a much stickier, that, that sticks. And it's, it, it's a really important point because we've also seen a very concentrated dose of Joe Biden in the last few weeks that we haven't for the first eight months. He's been in our faces on TV speaking to the public a lot more than he has before. And that defensiveness and that belligerence, which is then carried forward through his press secretary and, and other administration officials, is the defining thing people have in their heads right now as we get these other bits of you know disturbing information about the economy and COVID. I think this is a very, very important point, in some ways the most important political point, um, because uh, Biden has to, Biden presented himself in a certain way. Uh, uh, he was the happy warrior. That's a term that, that, that Obama used for him. Uh, or he was the empathetic guy. He was the guy who was like your dad. He was the working class guy from Scranton. He's the guy whose grandmother said, Joey, you know, always be nice to people. Joey, do this. Joey, do that. Uh, you know, he cries. He, he helps people with their stutter. He cries when they're, when they're, they have a, a relative who's dying. Um, all of that. And yet what we have seen over the last month is a raw Biden, is raw, Biden raw. And, and what he's like raw is querulous and petulant and unpleasant. And I, I'm not saying that because I dislike the policy. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to do do this as dispassionately as po- possible. You could always see it like in the eyes of the CNN and MSNBC analysts after the speeches were over, these sort of three or four different talks he gave uh, as as Kabul fell and then as the disasters were happening or in these press availabilities or whatever, that he would be done and then you'd go to the commentators and they had this squinty discomfort, uh, you know, on their faces that that wasn't what they wanted to hear and that he was really being very combative and defensive and, uh, you know, like that. So the people who wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt and were giving him the benefit of the doubt in their instantaneous responses to him were, were, experiencing a discomfort that suggested maybe this isn't the guy we thought he was and that's his cheerleading squad that's not us that's not national review that's not the wall street journal editorial page that's his people and he and he kept reinforcing it you know he'd come out and do it time and again right and they kept saying he was doubling down right Right. Biden doubles down on his policy. Biden doubles down. Usually when you say that, when you use that term, 
it's an expression of someone's doubling down because they're confident. Someone's doubling down because they think this is a winning bet. And if you double down on a bet, you get twice as much you know, gain from it as you did before, even though it seems risky. But when they were saying double down, they meant something else entirely. I mean, well, just, and, just, just to mention just how important likability is these days, I'm just thinking about Andrew Cuomo, who, strange as it was, was suddenly considered very likable. I mean, that that way, I, I, I never found him to be. But in the eyes of New Yorkers, during the worst of the COVID crisis, they had an idea about him, that he was personable, that he was there right in it with you, um, that he was sort of speaking your language, and that he understood. Had nothing to do with his policies. New York had, at the very same time, New York's numbers in terms of the, the pandemic were the worst. But that was... That was um, what made him, for that strange brief time, into a hero. Well, Matt, the benefit of the doubt point, I think, is also important because when someone's uh, likability and and belligerent, their likability decreases because their belligerence and defensiveness is on display on a regular basis to, to the American public. All those things that they've been telling us to just trust us, just trust us, we're going to get inflation under control, we're going to get jobs back, we're going to... Put, you know, we're going to uh, end COVID, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Keep, suspicion starts to creep in. And then when you add to that, their inability or, or in, in the case of Afghanistan, unwillingness to actually tell us what's happening on the ground, to literally continue a narrative that in real time you can check and say, that's not true. That's uh, deadly to the idea that we should trust us, trust them on other aspects of their policymaking. Noah, let's talk a little bit about, about uh, COVID and and its relation to all of this, because obviously the COVID numbers, the raw numbers, particularly in terms of fatalities, are very distressing. Uh, there were about 1,500, according to the New York Times uh, yesterday, which is a 15, you know, 15 times the number or close to 15 times the number that it was six or seven weeks ago. And yet, and yet, and yet, according to the Times also, we are approaching, we are very close, maybe tomorrow, maybe Sunday, we will reach 75% of all Americans over the age of 18 having at least one shot. Um, and uh, the White House seems to have so lost the thread that uh, even though it needs good news, it needs good news in every possible way, um, uh, it can't even celebrate this fact and to say, despite everything that we've been seeing and hearing and saying, Americans are getting vaccinated. More than 200 and something million people have had at least one shot. Um, and this has all happened in eight months. Yeah, uh, that should be something to celebrate. Uh, and they're not, as you said, I don't want to dismiss <clears throat> favorability necessarily. Favorability and unfavorability are distinct from job approval ratings. Um, cause you can like somebody or dislike somebody and still approve of the, what they're doing in office. Um, and Joe Biden's unfavorability ratings are slightly underwater now. Uh, and they have been on the decline since April, roughly when they were well above water. He was just a generally liked figure, but he is still a generally liked figure compared to just about everybody else in national politics, but Nancy Pelosi, Kevin McCarthy, Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell, he outpaces all of them by a significant degree. So to the extent that his uh, job approval ratings are below where he's at in his unfavorability ratings, that's due to Democrats sort of dropping out 
And I think that's sort of the decoder ring that I use to navigate the both COVID and this really disappointing unemployment uh, report. According to the New York Times analysis of it, a lot of this was driven by people who are pairing back um, their interactions with the outside world amid the reemergence of uh, COVID and this Delta variant in particular. Um, people who were going out to eat, for example, are, are starting to drop out. Um, rest hours worked at restaurants and entertainment venues has declined. Um, so you can see, and, and people who are working from home is on the rise again for the first time since December. So you can see, and as you can see, a lot of this is a response to COVID. And to the extent that this is something you can track as a partisan issue, um, which is not a perfect correlation, obviously, but nevertheless is helpful. Um, it is that Democrats, primarily, who are um, unnerved by their outside environment, are the ones who are driving this. Um, you know, it's not, it's to the extent that we can see it, it's not really Republicans in, in, in that sense. So it is Democrats who are being told by their public officials that uh, the, the pandemic is not only not over, but is resurgent. And this is sort of core premise of Joe Biden's administration. The president himself promised that his administration would get its hands around the pandemic at long last and demonstrate that technocratic uh, competence um, would deliver you from this condition that was mostly, almost entirely, to hear the rhetoric around it, a product of the Trump administration's incompetence. They find out that it's not and it turns out that this is a much more complicated problem than they thought it was. And the technocratic elite won't deliver them from this condition. And that's very depressing. So, yes, that is that's driving, you know, people who independents are already off the bus. Republicans never got on. But Democrats are slowly starting to come to the conclusion that the Biden administration isn't what it was promised to be. And that's dispiriting and disillusioning. Well, they also, they won't acknowledge the existence of COVID fatigue among people, right? The people who told us, oh, it's fine, take off your mask in the spring, and then you got to slap your mask back on now. And the fact that people have kind of no longer always trust what the public health officials are saying, because as you say, Noah, they, they really don't know, but they won't acknowledge what they don't know. And they won't acknowledge the seesawing on public health recommendations. So that makes it, a, it that, of course, it's going to become political because people, leaders will decide like DeSantis did in Florida, I'm not going to have mandates, I'm not going to do this or that. And people actually appreciate someone taking a stand versus the technocratic, you know, sort of public health elite now going, ah, well, just wear the mask. Just trust us again. Continue to trust us. It's been a long time that they've asked us to trust them. Right. Well, here's the irony of this, which is that um, what has gone on over the last year uh, represents or longer than a year represents a huge triumph for the technocratic elite. We're talking about the development approval and deployment of a vaccine. And this is the point I want to make. 75% of Americans over the age of 18 have had at least one shot, or by the end of this weekend, 75% will have had at least one shot. Think about what that means. That means that we are being, we have this portrait of the country in which the country is wildly divided. Democrats are all getting vaccinated, except for some minorities who are worried about the Tuskegee you know, we're worried that this is some uh, return to the Tuskegee experiments. And uh, Republicans aren't because they're all uh, uh, crazy ivermectin swallowing, uh, you know, medicine show credulous followers of anti-vax Tucker Carlson mania. Except that's not true. 
75% of people in this country over the age of 18 have been vaccinated. Most people are getting vaccinated. It is a small number of people who are not for a wide variety of reasons. And according to what we had once been told, that should be herd immunity level numbers. It needs to be herd immunity down from 18 to zero for us really to get there. And so that we can't get there because they haven't approved a vaccine for, for 12 and unders. But we are now confusing the behavior of a small minority, which also shows up at town hall meetings and, 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 and threatens people like, you know, lunatics and psychotics and schizophrenics who have grabbed onto this issue and are being thought of as some kind of stand-ins for general conservative uh, uh, public opinion. Conservatives are getting vaccinated. Liberals are getting vaccinated. Everybody is getting vaccinated. And yet Biden and his people who could be taking credit for this incredible triumph have lost the thread and cannot do it and are contributing to COVID fatigue and are not doing something to counter what Noah describes, which is Democrats and liberals who are, who are, um, how, how could you describe it, reveling in their COVID anxiety. They are not doing anything to counteract that feeling. And we are therefore seeing these job, these bad jobs numbers and other stuff that is entirely the result of their inability to talk their own people into believing that what they've done is a value. And we're not going to do that. Like I'm standing here praising them, but like, it's not for me to say you should really listen to Joe Biden and the CDC. Cause I also think that they're behaving like lunatics. What is Joe Biden doing wearing a mask in a room with Zelensky of Ukraine? He's double vaccinated. Zelensky is double vaccinated. Every person on the White House staff is double vaccinated. And every reporter in that room is double vaccinated. Biden is at no risk of getting COVID. He is, he is therefore doing a virtue signaling behavior, which is I'm a double vax person. I'm going to wear a mask indoors. Let's, let's just live through this forever. This is never going to end. Well, is that not the message that he should be conveying for his own political sake? Well, to say nothing of the cynicism that kind of posturing uh, breeds in the people who who are trying to be responsible, but also don't have the kind of, you know, don't live in the bubble of security and safety that the president does, right? The ones who are worried about their high school students having to wear a mask all day or about, you know, all, all the other sort of anxieties about this constant mask wearing. Um, and to be to be shamed into thinking that even asking questions about whether the masks are working or whether they're necessary for people who've been vaccinated uh, is is a problem. And they're not acknowledging it. They're playing right into that. And, and they think, oh, it's no big deal. But to a lot of people, it is a big deal. And they need to acknowledge that that's the case. Uh, I was saying this. Um, I actually wrote about this for because we talked about it, John, the week that you were away. Um, but I wrote about it for an MSNBC piece uh, in, under the premise that essentially masking, they, they've convinced themselves that masking is, is you know, no big intervention and that if you have a problem with it, in fact, you're kind of a crank. Um, and it, first of all, contradicts the Biden administration's own messaging around this. And second of all, um, it projects and conveys something that maybe not a, isn't an intellectual exercise, but is nonetheless, I think, very real, which is to convey to people that your environment around you is not safe, that you are not safe, that you should maintain a heightened state of anxiety. 
um, which is something that is frankly uh, debilitating. I mean, to, to, to be constantly terrified of the world around you isn't something that uh, is going to give you confidence in any of your elected officials, much less the Biden administration, which had promised you that it would deliver you from this sort of situation. And I would add, around the anxiety produced by masking, it is entirely the Biden administration's fault insofar as Joe Biden is a bad president, by which I mean he's a bad executive. He His executive style is to set arbitrary deadlines for delivery of deliverables. And those arbitrary deadlines do not produce the deliverables that he's desiring. So his arbitrary deadlines are destroying him. We have two in Afghanistan, September 11th, and then eventually August 31st, both of which could not produce what he wanted to produce, but he stuck to the to the deadline anyway, just like COVID. COVID, the deadline for COVID was supposed to be July 4th, right? Freedom of summer, and we would be delivered from it. But everybody had moved on well before that, including his own executive agencies. The CDC had said in May that masking was no longer necessary. So by the time July 4th rolled around, it seemed like he was just hopelessly out of touch. And then all of a sudden they had to backtrack on it. Um, There was another one around the uh, the origins of this report, which uh, Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, uh, apparently leaned into the deadline as being the problem. That's why we couldn't give you what you wanted because you wanted it by date certain. The report on the origins of COVID. Origins of yeah. COVID yeah. report. And it was the date certain that prevented us from giving you the answer that you wanted or any answer at all. And here's So the, yes, he's a bad president way, and a and bad that, manager. By the way, just quickly, that that is a species of his... Uh, the senatorial overhang. So when the, when the, when the Senate or congressman wants to push an administration to do something in the law, they say this report must be done every three months, or you have to have this by September 30th, or whatever. And therefore, they 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 oblige the bureaucracy to obey dictates that they themselves have imposed on a bureaucracy they do not control through law. When you're the president, you don't have to do that because they already work for you. So to say to Avril Haines, do me a report on the on the origins of COVID. If she comes to you and says, "I need three more months," like we we don't we're we're not producing it, it is wildly arbitrary. Like those 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 dates usually exist, as I say, as a means of of congressional oversight of executive branch functions. And he has not reconciled himself to the fact that that is not the world that he lives in. Abe, I'm sorry. That's fine. And the, the, the problem is when you let the deadline define the mission and not the mission define the deadline. I'm still thinking in Afghan terms when I say, when I say mission. Yeah. But, but whatever the, whatever the, the goal is. Um, and then the deadline comes and you haven't achieved the goal. There's nowhere to go except introduce another arbitrary deadline or, or just or drop it altogether. You can't well, I was going to say, or dissemble or lie, which is the other yeah. option right. they've chosen on a few things. Right. Guys, um, I want to talk to you about another podcast, not our podcast, but the um, uh, the Dan Corona post Dan Corona, <laughs> Dan Senor's post Corona podcast, which you can get on Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, or where, wherever. Um, I talked to uh, earlier in the week about his fantastic conversation with the political consultant Mike Murphy about California and the Gavin Newsom recall, which still remains one of the most uh, delightful hours that you will ever spend talking about Gavin Newsom. Uh, and uh, he's dropping a new one today with Dr. Uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee, 
the best-selling author of The Emperor of All Maladies, a biography of cancer, which won the Pulitzer Prize in nonfiction, writer for The New Yorker, assistant professor of medicine at Columbia, um, uh, backer uh, of Promising Startups in the Life Sciences. And uh, he is trying to discuss what literally the post-corona atmosphere and how uh, we really need to start moving on from this idea that Delta, that the, excuse me, that Corona will be with us forever. He says there will be small localized brush fires here and there, but not a never ending extension of what we've been experiencing over the past 18 months. Uh, This is important and interesting as a, not exactly a corrective to some of the earlier things that he wrote, but um, he, in The New Yorker, wrote pieces wildly critical of the American response to corona and has had reason, in part in response to our own Yuval Levin's piece uh, on what we got right in the war on COVID, um, to say that maybe we did better than it looked like we were going to be doing uh, early last year. So that's um, uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee on the Dan Senor post-corona podcast Download it today. Listen to it over the weekend. You will be enlightened. You will be entertained. And go back and listen to that Mike Murphy episode if you can, because um, it's gold. So uh, do that for me uh, and do it for yourself. Um, Let's move on to talk about Afghanistan because uh, I saw something. I now need to find it here because I had it and then I somehow closed out of it. a here we go. Sorry, um, an, a piece on KTVB Channel Seven in Boise, Idaho's website. Okay, Boise, Idaho. Haven't seen this many other places, so I've had to go to Boise, Idaho for this. The headline is: With Senator Rich's help, woman returns to Boise from Afghanistan. Uh, That's Idaho U.S. Senator uh, Jim Risch. He has successfully helped evacuate 10 U.S. citizens from Idaho out of Afghanistan. Um, And one of them is Washida Ivey, a U.S. citizen born in Afghanistan who left in 1981 when Russia, after Russia, invaded the country. With help from Risch's office, she had returned after she returned after visiting her family for a week, she knew that Americans would soon evacuate the country and she wanted to see her cousins and sister before that happened. And she says, I knew, kind of knew what was about to happen, but I also knew that if I didn't go see my sister, I probably would have never got to see her again, she said. Here's the important point here, is that this American citizen, Wahida Ivy, trying to get herself to the airport, was beaten by the Taliban. She made five attempts to get on a plane back to America. What she saw throughout the process was disturbing. Pushing, shoving, Taliban are there at the gate. They are hitting people with wires, and I have bruises. I took a couple of hits. They don't see people. They see them as this rush of animals standing in the doors, and these people are just desperate to make it through that gate. Okay? An American citizen was beaten by the Taliban at the airport. Why is this story not leading the nightly news? Why am I reading about it? on a local Idaho television station's website. 
for the same reason we still don't know how many Americans are trapped there and how many people who are eligible to leave the country on an SIV visa are still trapped there because nobody wants to talk about it. They did a pretty dramatic shift they, with, with an assist from a hurricane slash tropical storm and all the horrible damage that that caused. And they won't go back. They don't want to go back. The message from the White House is, we're done. We're moving on. So every time you bring it up is an uncomfortable moment for them. And honestly, I think anyone who cares about what's still going on there should begin every every broadcast or whatever it is they do with an accounting of the numbers who ha- who were left behind. We left these people behind. There's the- something similar from um, National Review's Jim Garrity, who flagged this one from um, KPRC in Houston. Couldn't be um, more local. Um, which describes the story of an Afghan refugee, not a citizen, but a visa holder, who's been living in Houston for two years, who's uh, unidentified in this report, but describes how um, she is now receiving written communications from the Taliban describing what they're going to do to her family if she does not return. She's being extorted um, by the Taliban uh, with the threat, uh, physical threat to her family in Afghanistan. Um, Presumably, this is a more widespread campaign to get the diaspora back into Afghanistan and lock them into this totalitarian regime. Can only imagine how many other similar stories there are. Because we can only imagine it because no one's talking about it. Well, but I think, you know, the reason no one's talking about it is because these stories contradict the administration's line on these things, right? It was, uh, we're not really aware of Americans being uh, abused by the Taliban. Um, We... The fact that she attempted the in John's story that the woman attempted five times to get out, um, uh, well, that cuts into the well, we've contacted them 19 times. Um, and um, I'm sorry, I forgot there was a, there was a detail in the in the second story in no, in your story, but I'm not draw, drawing her back anyway. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't, right? Matter. Yeah, yeah, okay. So here's here's the key to understanding. So you're saying this is because it's harmful to the Biden administration's line. My hope, and I, I said this on our, our text thread last night, and I mentioned that only because um, Abe was kind of, I mean, trying again to look at this in a way that isn't just unremittingly negative. Um, what if the what if the people who are following this at the highest levels, and I mean also in 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 journalism and contact with the Biden administration, uh, have they've been told to cool it a little bit because negotiations are ongoing for the extraction? of Americans and SIV holders and stuff like that with the Taliban and that um, and that the story, the horror stories are, are not being told or being soft peddled in order to facilitate uh, these um, extractions. I don't have any evidence that that is the case. I do know that that is, has been the case with other hostage situations in other countries and negotiations, delicate negotiations between administrations of both parties and mainstream media figures to say, can you not push hard on this because we're close and, you know, we'll let you have the story when it's over or something like that. Okay. But that, but I hope like you do, John, I hope that's the truth for the sake of the people who are trapped and trying to get out. The only problem with that is that they are also trying to uh, suppress or, or not talk about the the evidence that we already have that the, how the Taliban is treating its own citizens. So because I think that the, 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 the signal uh, moral error that the Biden administration made is deciding to, to pitch the Taliban as, you know, kinder, gentler Taliban 2.0. There are allies. They're not as bad as ISIS-K, which we've talked about on this podcast for a couple of weeks now. To, to maintain that fiction, and it is a fiction, 
you have to kind of suppress not just what they might be trying to do behind the scenes to extract Americans and visa holders, but their entire regime. Well, and because we know that Joe Biden said on a phone call to to President Gandhi when everything was was going to hell, say things are going well, um, we have no reason to believe this administration um, when it comes to the broadcasting of good news or the absence of bad news. Um, we, 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 we know where they're at when it comes to this. And yeah, the other thing is they are pushing a line about cooperating with the Taliban. Um, now, you could say maybe that is a, just a, a, they're doing this temporarily also in an effort to ensure the safety of those, those Americans are, are left behind. Um, I hope that's true. I hope I hope you know we 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 revert to calling our our obvious enemies our enemies. Uh, uh, if and when, thank God, the all the Americans are who will need to get out of there, get out of there. But I don't trust that at all. I'm not saying you should. Right. I, I'm really not. I mean, I because frankly, some of this is so baffling that one 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 attempts to to create a a, a kind of a plausible narrative line. To explain the inexplicable. Um, uh, granted, you might be in a situation in which you were the Biden administration. You were like, "Don't talk about this because it makes us look bad." And on the other hand, like, why? Wh- why would you feel implicated uh, in 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 journalists telling the truth about horror stories in Afghanistan? Like, uh, fine. So the yeah, line is okay. Go ahead. Just I feel like I'm unfortunately I feel like you're very hopeful narrative. Um, doesn't have a lot to support it because today we had a report from the Associated Press um, relaying the ordeal um, by American citizens, Afghan American citizens, I think maybe dual nationals, but the story doesn't make clear, um, who describe being beaten by the Taliban, dodging gunfire, attempting to get to the airport, failing to get to the airport, and being stranded behind enemy lines, um, who I think were subsequently able to get out. But nevertheless, that's, you know, the Associated Press. So we're not talking about a gag order here. Right. No, I don't think there's a gag order. I, but they I'm, got out. Yeah. So right. They got out. So, right. But I mean, I do think that there is a, a very strange thing going on here. So uh, the number 100 is being bandied about for American citizens left behind. Which you was know, the low end estimate. But we don't even know what that number is or where they came up with it. They said they've been emailing. I don't even know. They said for weeks they had no idea how to accurately count the yeah. number of Americans in there right. because they didn't register. You know, right. yeah, we don't yeah. track them. We have no idea right. how many people in. All of a sudden, they have a, a definitive number to, to the individual. Right. right. So we had 52 American diplomats who were formally, literally taken hostage uh, in, in, in Iran in 1979. 52. They were diplomats, which makes it worse in some ways. It's like sort of like a cop getting, you know, killed or something. And on the other hand, it makes it better because they are sort of formally the representatives of the United States. It doesn't make it better. That's not the right word. But I mean, it's sort of more explicable, right? And the Iranian government didn't want to be tagged with this so closely because they said, no, no, it's these students. These students did it. I mean, there's excess of zeal these students taking these hostages, right? Those 52 people, the entire foreign policy of the United States was upended by this fact. 
I mean, I, I can't describe if you were not alive then or not that conscious what the hostage crisis was. There is no analog or parallel to it with the exception of COVID in our lifetime or 9-11 in the sense of a kind of all-consuming event that people watched as close to 24-7 as it was possible to watch things 24-7 for 14 or 15 months. And we're now talking about at least double that number. Now, they're not formally in the custody of the Taliban who are, you know, in the same way. But um, we're somehow being told that the number 100 isn't large when it is, at the very least, the rock bottom number of the people who are trapped there. And we're not then even talking about the tens of thousands of people who worked with our forces, um, whom we've essentially basically given up on helping, as far as I can tell. Well, again, that's moving the goalposts as well. If you notice how Asaki and and other spokesmen for the administration talk about those people now, they just don't. There was this acknowledgement that, yeah, we're not getting them out. And then let's move on to the conversation about these only 100 Americans. And if they want to get, we're going to make sure we get them out. But it's just- If the, they the, want to come out, if right? They, That's yeah, Biden the, saying, if they want to get out, we'll get them out. Right. I mean, it's contemptuous, to. contemptuous to just dismiss all of these people who helped us, who who are were basically sentencing to death if it's discovered that they helped us. Uh, with the flippant, oh, well, yeah, we couldn't, we couldn't manage that. But, you know, wow, we're out of Afghanistan. That's what America wanted. You know, I, I, mean, I, had, I had anticipated uh, the, the that once America, once we were out of Afghanistan and we had left hundreds of Americans behind, I, I had anticipated the sort of popular viewing of this as similar to something like the Iranian hostage crisis. You know that that maybe it would be sort of you know it's day three and there are X numbers of Americans trapped in in um, in Afghanistan and there would be a sort of national watch. On, on this issue. And there's not that, which is what we're saying. And I wonder if in part this is because we have had this year and a half of such extraordinary upheaval where the, the boundaries of crisis have, have been pushed so far out, um, having to do with COVID, obviously, and things like January 6th, that a hostage crisis, which is what this is, is sort of no longer has the same impact that it did in in relatively normal times. It's quite possible, but there's literally nothing to report. Right. The White House is being quiet about that, it. That's the true. Taliban would obviously right. be quiet about it. They want as many bargaining chips as they possibly can. So we just don't have anything to talk about. Although, so, just, imagine this were Trump. There would be something to right. report. They would, the, 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 the story would be foisted upon the administration. It would have been, what is the Trump administration doing? He's, the, the, the president has left behind uh, 100 Americans. It's day three. It's, there, there would be a watch. There would be a sort of a, a national kind of clock and a, and a, and a sort of a, 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 some campaign to um, make the administration account for what's going on. Right. Instead, it's Republicans pounce again, right? right. There are all these stories. It's like, I think we were seizing on this one. We seized Republicans who supported Trump's call for the pullout from Afghanistan are now using this as a as a you know wedge against Democrats. Well, yeah, that's first of all, that's how politics works, and what's more, it's how politics is supposed to work. That is to say, if you're going to do something high stakes and high risk, which is what Joe Biden did by 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 announcing this pullout from Afghanistan. 
uh, if you are going to get the reward if it goes well, you are also going to have to take the blows if it goes badly. That's what it means when you double down or you do what, you know, it's the same thing as before. Your, your rivals are going to take advantage of political expediency to try to take you down. Uh, which is one of the reasons why a more prudent person wouldn't have done what Biden did here, because the risk-benefit calculation in the narrowest and most cynical political terms would be, you know, if we game this out and it goes badly, like they're just going to eat my lunch. So maybe we should just let things stand until things are, are are cleaner. No, I'm going to be the peacemaker. I'm going to pull us out and all of that. And so now... What we have instead is, oh, Republicans are trying to make hay out of Biden's, uh, you know, bungled withdrawal from Afghanistan. That's that's what that's what a dynamic system does. I mean, you know, that's like saying the sun rises in the morning and sets in the evening. And you know what else? Uh, what else this uh, system does? You want to feel better. You want to you want to treat your body right. You want to get all the nutrients you need throughout your day. And that's why I'm talking to you about Super Beats Heart Chews, uh, a form of essential self-care for anybody who wants to be the best parent, spouse, friend, and employee they can be. Super Beats Heart Chews combine non-GMO beets with a special ingredient, grapeseed extract, unique to Super Beats Heart Chews. Grapeseed extract has been the focus of scientific research for years due to its high concentration of antioxidants, which support cardiovascular health and overall wellness. The grapeseed extract used in Superbeet Heart Chews has been clinically shown to be two times as effective at supporting normal blood pressure as healthy lifestyle alone. Healthy blood flow means more energy the way nature intended without the jittery caffeine or stimulants. Do what I did and support your heart health with delicious Superbeet's Heart Chews. Get your Superbeet's Heart Chews today at superbeets.com slash commentary. And when you buy two bags, they'll throw in the third for free. That's superbeets.com slash commentary. Um, I had a really brilliant idea for where to go, and now I've totally lost the thread because I was thinking about grapeseed extract. <laughs> so, um, so let, the ad is working on you. The yes, <laughs> yes. I'm, it, it, my essential self care is that I've now I've now lost lost the thread of our lost the thread of our discussion. Oh, okay. So Biden's in political trouble on all these fronts. He's got the country depressed about COVID. He's got bad jobs numbers. He's got Afghanistan. Uh, And the question, we talked about this with Matt Cotton yesterday. He's got a column about it today. We've got people talking about this. Uh, Oh, and and of course, the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill has been basically thrown in the toilet by Joe Manchin. So what can he use to unite the Democrats and give them a grassroots issue and give them a passion to go ahead for 2022? The Texas abortion law. And that's the question I think facing is, are we going to see an embrace of the uh, of the idea that the Texas uh, abortion law is the worst thing that's ever happened and that this is the logical consequence of every Republican policy that has ever been affected uh, and, and uh, therefore uh, Democrats are going to be activated as never before from the local level to the national level and give them something to rally or give them a cause to rally around uh, that they will take into 2022 and give them uh, a way out of this morass that they've gotten into. I mean, it's possible, but let's game this out. I mean, <clears throat> this ruling 
right procedural ruling before the court reviews the merits of the case, which is next year. In the interim, they can fundraise, they can get a lot of energy in the grassroots level, um, but Democrats would probably have to promote or propose some sort of a legislative remedy, right, to rally around, codify Rowan law. Nobody seems inclined to do that. So I'm just, I'm, I'm just wondering where this energy would have, what outlet would the energy have besides rhetoric, cable news segments, a lot of people protesting. Where's, where's the electoral, um, you know, bounce that they would, when would they receive it? I mean, it's predicated on the assumption that the Supreme Court affirms this five uh, four ruling that just refused an injunction. Well, it's a little complicated. By no means assured. Well, there are two different things here. The court sent this back for adjudication by lower courts, right? It said it wasn't going to stay the law. Uh, now Planned Parenthood is trying to get a local a judge in Texas or something like that to stay the law under 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 those terms, uh, and then deal have a have lower courts deal with the constitutionality question and the um, and the novel uh, enforcement mechanisms. Uh, and that maybe that will end up going to the court. The thing that's going to be before the court uh, this year is a case that basically goes right at the constitutionality of Roe v. Wade. Yeah, let that. And so that I think it, from the in terms of the political and strategic game they, that the Democrats are, are are revving up right now about uh, this other law, the Mississippi law actually looks more reasonable that's compared subject, to it. Right. That's the subject of the Supreme. The case of the Supreme right. Court has taken Dobbs v. Jackson law. Women's Health. It bans it bans yeah. abortions after 15 weeks, but it does have exceptions: medical emergency, severe fetal abnormality. So, compared to what they're railing against now, it looks more reasonable. So that they, they could overreach strategically by saying, by trying to make this blanket, saying any any restriction at all is is going to eliminate road you know, this law, that law. Making the distinctions is important because that we talked about this with Matt yesterday. Americans make those distinctions. They're actually quite savvy about thinking through whether it's first trimester, second trimester, or third trimester. So they're, activists don't tend to do that, and they might be overreaching if they don't think about that. I'm just wondering where the benefit comes from, just because Democrats are understood to be the party that will support and propose, or rather just stand in opposition to uh, attacks on abortion rights. But in what way? Like, wouldn't there need to be some kind of Actual concrete ah, affirmative position here, other than just well, we're the good guys. Not necessarily. I mean, I think you could Certainly say not for fundraising. No, I think you could say. I mean, there is one thing where it connects to uh, a hot issue from last year uh, that you really could see as a kind of talking point, though it is extreme. But we don't really know how extreme or how people will take it as extreme, which is. Uh, we need to raise this money. We need to. We need uh, Republican. We need Democratic senators and Democratic representatives increased in 2022 with the Democratic president, so we can pack the court. We need to pack the court because Republicans have gotten nine have gotten a majority on the court uh, through subterfuge. Uh, re, you know, with representative with with unequal representation in the Senate because of the undemocratic nature of the Senate empowering smaller states over larger states and benefiting and privileging those people as opposed to the larger states, the blue states that support abortion rights and all of that. And so the so affirmative the courts, position is eliminate the Senate. 
No, the affirmative. Yes. Well, there's the eliminating the Senate. And pack the court. Do but not pack, forget but, to pack the court. Packing the court. In other words, like we are now in this position where nine unelected representatives, nine unelected people, they're they're too powerful. The country is too big. There are two. And, and you now have this uh, six to three uh, majority that supports policies that are patently uh, bad. Uh, and so, um, we're raising money to get a democratic Senate and, a, and, and, a, and maintain the democratic house so that we can increase the number of, of justices on the Supreme court through, which, which just takes a law. It just takes a, the passage of a law to increase the number of Supreme court justices. But, um, right. But on abortion in particular, I mean, that I, I think it's important to, to, to note that it is what's what pollsters and others call a threshold issue for a lot of voters, like just about equal numbers of voters say they will, they're kind of single issue vote, like they will vote either pro-life or pro-choice, like that is the issue for them. And whatever else a candidate promises them, if they're wrong on that issue, they're not going to get that person's vote. But it's kind of balanced, right? So they, the, the concern for the Democrats with this strategy, it's the same. I mean, their messaging has been all over the place with this. I mean, I'm thinking just in particular about when, when pressed by a reporter yesterday, uh, Jen Psaki was asked, so, so how does Joe Biden, you know, he made this White House statement, which was pretty over the top with its rhetoric at the end about the, uh, the, this this uh, law and the Supreme Court's decision uh, saying it. So he, or not saying it, uh, her response to how can a Catholic president justify supporting, you know, a, abortion? She said to the male reporter, well, you don't understand because you're a man. I'm like, wait, we're all birthing people now. So why is it suddenly fine for birthing her as a people. woman to call out a man? He could be pregnant, according to the Biden administration's view. So like the confusion, because they're trying to, you know, they're trying to stay woke on so many of these things that actually that has has undermined some of their messaging on this stuff in terms of women's rights, particularly among women, including many feminists. Look, I mean, I think the 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 thing that we don't we don't know or don't understand is is abortion a good rallying cry? I mean, on the one hand, uh, this is a very extreme law, and it it just it is an extreme law, and extreme laws tend to be good things to oppose because people can see the extremes in the law. Are tens of millions of people who otherwise wouldn't vote in the midterm elections going to come out to support abortion? That you don't know. I mean, um, you could see in general terms, people who support abortion uh, and, uh, and no restrictions on abortion are already Democratic voters. Maybe you can get them out in higher numbers in, in a midterm election than you could otherwise. I don't know. I, I think the uh, Biden administration has to wrap their hands around it no matter what, because it's all they have right now. Um, the, 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 the COVID story has gone bad for them. The economy story is going bad for them. The, the, the overarching theme that we're the adults has gone bad for them. Afghanistan has gone horribly. What on earth do they have? They, they, they have to embrace something here. And, it, and, it, and it is a story that the media would love to pick up and run with. So they'll, they'll get the full compliance of their cheering section in the process. Maybe. I mean, that sounds to me exactly like the caravans. That sounds like could be Donald Trump leaning, well, 100% into the idea. The caravans are coming. The caravans, the caravans is going to energize their base. That's all they care about. And they didn't show up. Well, that's the question because I, I, they didn't show up in part because, I mean, they did show up, by the way, 53 million 
Republicans did vote in the midterm elections in 2018. Yes, not, just 62 million Democrats voted. Exactly. Not in numbers yeah. that could overcome all the other factors that right. are motivating the other side with right. more power. Well, and, de- and, and, I, and I have to say, Democrats, uh, particularly abortion rights activists, often misread how their messaging is going to be received. Mm-hmm. People like it when you're for something. And Biden has wanted to be for shutting down the pandemic, for economic, you know, throwing money at everybody and every problem. But now he's for abortion. That's a different, that that lands, that message lands, not for abortion rights. Some people will just hear, so the thing he's really advocating, what gets us to the polls is abortion. Hmm. Not sure that's going to be the same resonance for a lot of voters. So what they would say, obviously, is it's not about abortion. It's about access to abortion, right? That's the whole idea here is what you are doing is you are limiting the people in Texas and their access to abortion. And this is a terrible thing. But I'll just give you an example of something Again, in, uh, talking in, in discomfiture terms. I, I mean, I am discomfited about this topic. I'm of several minds about it. I don't know really where. I mean, I'm 60 years old, and I, I, I bounce back and forth on my feelings about abortion constantly. So I, I say this as a person, I think, who is very much like most Americans or a lot of Americans in this regard. Uh, so I'm watching Good Morning America this morning, and they're interviewing a doctor from Houston uh, who works at a Planned Parenthood clinic in Houston, talking about what happened when they said they couldn't perform. There was a woman there, and he couldn't do it, and so they were discussing options and what he could do. And then he said casually, like, usually I perform up 20 to 30 abortions a day, and now I can't really you know, now they're they're going to make me stop this. And I thought, 20 to 30 abortions a day? So you perform 100 to 150 abortions a week? So you perform six or 7,000 abortions a year? These are medical procedures you're doing. You're, you're like, you're some kind of mill in which this is what you're doing. And and I, I actually... Like, I, I, I had this moment of revulsion, like, dear God, really? This and is why that, they, use yes. yeah. they, they use euphemisms like women's health. They don't use raw data, raw numbers for that, for yeah. that very reason. Well, yeah. frankly, I think where you are in abortion is irrelevant to whether or not this is politically salient. Because like you say, John, most I think most Americans, it's true, most Americans are of many minds of the issue. They don't don't have a coherent, ideologically uh, neat position on it. Uh, and they are not represented by anybody who talks about this sort of thing in the public sphere. They are utterly abandoned by the talking class who is really absolutist one way or the other on the issue. However, back to the caravan stuff, if you're going to base your entire electoral strategy around a base mobilization strategy around a single issue, it sounds like you are doing so to the exclusion of everything else, which is what's going, which is going to have the, the opposite effect of what they want. It will mobilize a very small core amount of democratic voters to the, at, with the effect of also radicalizing everybody else who isn't in that core quadrant. Maybe. I mean, that's it's just interesting to see because I think Abe is right that they have no choice but to embrace this. And it could be very successful and it could have weird, unanticipated consequences in in producing a kind of discomfort in the embrace of a procedure that is frankly something that makes people queasy, even if they support it. That's a lot of people. Um, and that's just a fact. And you know what else is a fact is 
uh, you may be underneath your office chair. You got this plastic mat, and it's like it's cracked and it's it, mushy and it's turning a weird yellow brown color. It makes your room look terrible. So let me tell you about a premium alternative: a glass chair mat by Vitraza. Vitraza glass chair mats are made of super strong glass, protected with a nanotech coating. This mat is legitimately beautiful and will take the look of your office to a whole new level. Uh, People love how smoothly and silently their chair glides on it. Comfort style durability of Vitraza glass chair mat will completely transform your workspace. And Vitraza glass chair mats come with a lifetime warranty, so it's the last chair mat you will ever need. Order online at vitraza.com slash commentary. That's V-I-T-R-A-Z-Z-A dot com slash commentary. They offer 18 popular glass chair mat sizes and shipping is free. And here's a special deal for our listeners. Get 10% off any glass chair mat with promo code commentary at vitraza.com slash commentary. Again, save 10% by using promo code commentary at V-I-T-R-A-Z-Z-A dot com slash commentary. So I want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, The month of August has been a terrible one for the United States, but a good one for the Commentary Magazine podcast. We've had a huge surge in listenership because apparently you uh, take some comfort uh, in our outrage uh, or having us mirror your own, um, or you find it profitable to hear what we have to say. And uh, even if you disagree, so I thank you very, very much. I hope you have a wonderful Labor Day weekend. We will not be recording or podcasting Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday. Monday is Labor Day. Tuesday and Wednesday are the first two, are the uh, first two days of the Days of Awe, Rosh Hashanah, and so we will be back uh, on Thursday morning, uh, which I guess is the ninth, uh, to uh, continue to. Uh, express our outrage and enlighten you with our wisdom for a Christina Noah. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.